Welcome to episode one of The Soundstage, the official College of Charleston Film Club podcast. Today's episode is hosted by Bristol Barnes, Keller Hollingsworth, and Max Myers. And today we're going to be talking about Jordan Peele's Nope and its commentary on spectacle cinema. Yeah, I honestly feel like there was just a lot of hype built up around Nope. Um, I feel like Jordan Peele was among uh, like this group of directors. It was like him and like Ari Aster and Robert Eggers and um, you could say Greta Gerwig and a few other of these directors who had these like two knock it out of the park movies and they're all kind of coming back with their third one and this was his one. And I feel like he had already just kind of put himself in this really well-respected group. So I was really excited for what was to come and I thought it was great. Yeah, there's no question now that he's a generational director. Mm-hmm. Um, he has certainly proven his talent. Yeah, mm-hmm. I <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw that really funny thing people were talking about online where some people were like, Jordan Peele is one of the best horror directors of all time. If you're like, he's made three movies, <laughs> which I also agree with. I think all three have been fantastic and I'm really excited for what's to come. But it's just it's funny for people to be like, everyone before him is nothing. He's the <laughs> best one. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think I see a realistic future in like 20 no, years yeah, where absolutely. he's on that pedestal. He's going to, yeah. yeah, he's going to go down in the, in the film history books. There's, I mean, Get Out was just as a debut insane. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, he's crazy and I love him. Um, I still just can't believe that he remade Jaws. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what yeah. like structure wise, that's what Nope is. Yeah. Um, it has been compared so heavily to Spielberg and, and Max and I watched Close Encounters. Yeah. Right. We watched it like, I think, was it after you it had seen it? It was after I had seen it and before you had seen it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, so I watched Nope with my coworkers like the night that the like digital copy was like allowed to be played like right at midnight it was like midnight of that Wednesday. It was like, okay, and now we can watch it. Like it's unlocked. And so we watched it before anyone else and it was so fun. And uh, like we're going straight out of it. one of my coworkers was like very Spielberg. And I was like, you know, I don't know anything about movies, but yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, um, definitely compared to close encounters, it makes a lot of sense. I see it a lot, but yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was just awesome. Like oh. I remember like watching it and I was like, I guess maybe I was expecting it to be like really scary and I wouldn't say it was necessarily scary, but it was just so thrilling and so suspenseful and just so like, like I feel like one of the things you could say with Jordan Peele already is that he knows suspense. Like that is like his like forte, I would Mm -hmm. say right now. What blew me away is um, that the whole first act, he's like building on things and he's clearly like establishing all of these, I don't want to say rules, but like, Mm -hmm all of these things that then fully came full circle later in the movie. Um, And like, so for the first act, you're kind of left wondering um, like, Oh, like where is this going? Like what's going to happen? But then once everything like starts to conclude, everything mattered. Like everything you saw earlier has a tie back in later on in the movie, Um, which is just really efficient and like really impressive. I know that a lot of people who like, you know, didn't get it. Um, were annoyed by that first act. They're like, oh, it's slow. This isn't scary. What is going on? I want to see aliens. But yeah. I thought that was like, looking I, back on yeah. it, that stuff that like build up was one of the coolest parts. Yeah, and I love that it's so aesthetically specific. Like I think the combination, and it just all makes sense together that it's crazy because the combination of like what it's in, it's in California, like in the desert, 
and having the like blow up guys from the car dealership and like the horses and just the Western vibe of it. I don't know. Everything is just so and something that stuck with me very much after the first viewing was also like, what does and I guess this can be a good um, segue. What does the whole Gordy's place thing have to do with it? Because mm -hmm. I could not stop thinking about it after watching it. I must have stayed up like an hour and a half after leaving work at like 2 a.m. Just being like, uh, like what, uh, what is... And it, I it over and I watched it a second time. And I was like, I think it, it directly ties into the commentary about like, you know, whenever you try to put certain things on film that obviously shouldn't be on film there's always going to be consequences like you know it's it's a little more of a specific example opposed to like the alien them filming the alien but like a wild animal that's always going to be a wild animal you put a camera in front of it and you pop a balloon and it just goes crazy and murders a bunch of people like that's mm -hmm. it's a, a more realistic example um but it's definitely what the theme is trying to say, I think, in a very poignant, in a way that you don't think about until afterwards, I feel like. Mm -hmm. And I definitely think, it, you know, he knew what he wanted to say, and I feel like he has a very reputable voice to say this. Like, I feel like, you know, even if you really didn't know a lot about Jordan Peele, watching his movies, you can tell that he loves film. You know, like, sure, he's got his background with, like, Comedy Central um, and a ton of that, just, like, making film, but, like, as, like, a a cinephile i think you can certainly see that you know like not only um you know is this about like uh you know the the movie's about like these these folks who have this like horse rental company for hollywood but there's like so many references littered in there and so many just like i don't know like oozes with that love for film like there's like the akira slide you know and a ton of that stuff so it's like when you hear someone who not only loves film a lot but like has already established themselves as like this very well-respected person in the industry, you know, when you hear this message about like, Hey, like, you know, spectacle is a thing, but maybe not everything needs to be filmed or maybe there's like, you know, issues that, um, are there with what we choose to make movies about or what kind of topics we choose to explore, you know, like you listen to that thing. And I think that's a really important part about it. And a lot of the, like, going in hand-in-hand hand with those themes, just, like, demanding respect. Because, like, in contrast with the Gordy's place, or was that what it's called? Gordy's, Gordy's Home. Gordy's Home. Yeah. Um, in contrast with, like, the monkey losing his shit and killing people, you had um, Daniel Kaluuya's character on set with the horse being like, hey, guys, like, let me go over some rules. Like, please, like, don't look mm -hmm. him in the eye. Like, be respectful. Don't freak him out. And then they freaked him out, and he didn't yeah. kill anybody. But um, sort of this, like, if you're going to, be using especially like the natural world you mm -hmm. have to like have equal respect for it yeah um, and that came back when it was like oh you can't look the horse in the eye you can't look the alien in its mm -hmm. face whole thing <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but it, it's coming it's like, it's interesting to have seen nope talk about you know needing respect and not needing to show everything on film and not needing to you know commercialize on every little thing that you can and then seeing like the controversies like Netflix's blonde and the Dahmer show yeah. mm -hmm. where it's like, Oh, these are real people and they're not doing justice to mm -hmm. their actual lives and actual stories. Yeah. Especially with the, the Dahmer stuff. Well, both of them, I know Dahmer, they just flat out didn't ask permission to some of the people who are depicted, not Dahmer's well, Dahmer's family too. I think I read recently that, 
Dahmer's dad is mm-hmm. suing Netflix because they that, yeah. because they think he thinks they glorified his killings. And he's oh. upset about that. He's like, no, now you're making it seem like my son did good things. Now, I didn't read the article, so don't, like, mm-hmm. I, if, I'm, if I'm misquoting it, I'm an idiot, and I was just scrolling on Twitter. But uh, that's interesting. And then, you know, with Blonde and just the recent, like, Hollywood's obsession with biopics is yeah. insane. Like, um, I know for Blonde, there's a scene in there of her, like, um, speaking to her unborn fetus and like it implies that she had an abortion, which she never did. Um, actually, Marilyn Monroe repeatedly miscarried and wanted to have a family so horribly, like she wanted children, and she just kept miscarrying and couldn't have a kid. Um, so, I j- it, it, it's so yeah, the respect thing is coming back. Like you, mm-hmm. when you're making a film about something, whether it's fictional or real, I think you need to show a level of respect for what you're you're like do, doing there what you're because whenever you make a film it's going to reach such a wide audience like every, a lot of people are going to say i mean blonde's one of the most viewed like within the, its release weekend on netflix it was one of the most viewed movies Dahmer is now i think the most viewed television um series on netflix it's nuts <laughs> yeah and it honestly just like you know to go off of that i feel like that really ties into just you know that bigger issue of like you know feel like right now Hollywood kind of has an issue with just exploitative media, you know, um, like, yes, the, the Dahmer and Blonde. But if you think about it, I feel like on top of those, there have already been at least like four or five other portrayals of Marilyn Monroe and Jeffrey Dahmer. And that's not even to count, you know, like as you kind of touched on, Hollywood is obsessed with the biopic. Like you've got all the TV shows, you've got like every movie is, oh, like you've got these biopics and all the the news is now like notable actor or actress is playing this person in this biopic. Like I feel like that's all the film. Yeah, news we're getting a is, second Elvis you know? biopic. Like yeah. Why? we just got the one with Austin Butler and now they're having another one about Priscilla, which I mean that's a problem in itself because they completely glaze over the fact that she was a minor whenever they got into a relationship in the Elvis movie. They were just like she was fourteen and he was like what twenty three, twenty four or something. Man, that's not okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So. uh, And then also like you know I saw some um, stuff in the news about The Crown too because I know Netflix like just released their promos about it. You know a you know the queen just passed away like two months ago. Um, and I saw that like, you know, I think it was Judy Dench who was like demanding that Netflix, you know, like at the very least put some sort of disclaimer in front of each episode that like very clearly states, you know, this is a like fictional take on mm-hmm. the Royal family, you know, just cause if the show, you know, is gonna do things and portray these real life people, especially one that I think, you know, there's very increased sensitivity to right now um, since it's so recent, since the Queen's passing, you know, like I think there's some fairness in wanting to, you know, really convey to the audience like, hey, this is fictional and like don't take that seriously. Um, And I feel like that's just one story on top of so many. 
What do you guys feel about like biopics or like films or media based off of real people taking liberties like that? Because I know that um, while working on, like for the Bohemian Rhapsody movie about Queen and Freddie Mercury, it was originally going to be Sacha Baron Cohen and not Rami Malek, but he left the project because he wanted to do, for, I guess for lack of a better word, a more honest story about Freddie. And like the, the they touch on it a little bit in the movie, but like the like darker period where like the band had kind of broken up and he was like on drugs. Um, and they wanted to like touch on that a little harder. And the band was like, no, 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 no. You're not allowed to sully the name of Freddie or the band. And they couldn't come to an agreement and he left the project. And that movie ended up being the weird, you know, train wreck that it ended up being. Yeah. Um, so like, what do you guys, how do you guys feel about taking liberties like that? I feel like, and I feel like when I say this, it's going to be like a, like there's always like gray areas and it's hard to put like a blanket statement, but like, as long as you're like maintaining like the integrity of who the person is, it, can sometimes be okay to create these fictional parts of their lives as long as like it's not presenting them in a way that's different than what their like greater character is or who they actually are if that makes sense like if someone's like already a quote-unquote good person and you're just adding more like fictional stuff that is behind that or if you're gonna add some fictional stuff to like build character that is their character I think sometimes that can be fine because, you know, like film is an art and there's a story in there. But I think if you're like taking these big strides to um, make it like a, an entertaining story, but then you're completely misrepresenting who's on stage. Like, I think the biggest example that comes to mind that is not a great example of this is The Greatest Showman. Um, I think that's an example where like creative liberties would not be appropriate. Yeah, I feel like it's always, I feel like creative liberties are always overdone. Like you all, at least in Hollywood, they always take the step that's too far. Like the Marilyn Monroe uh, abortion scene. Like that's not, you're completely, that's not who she was as a person. I think if you're doing a biopic, like the reason you're making it is because you want to educate people about that person. Mm -hmm. And I think if, if you're, Goal. Uh, first of all, you shouldn't be making a biopic if your goal is to entertain people. That's not. I mean, it can be a, a a secondary goal, but the main goal should be to educate people. And so, of course, as a filmmaker, you have to find a narrative in that because um, people don't go see movies unless they're interesting. But um, it's not a documentary, you know. It's a it's a fictional portrayal. But I, if you're adding stuff that just didn't happen in their life i feel like you're not educating anyone on anything you're just being like aha but this thing what if it did happen but it didn't but like you know and then it carries the story it just it like i i don't i don't think it's worth anything like <laughs> i don't know maybe i'm just um cynical but i that's not to say i think there are biopics that are done well I really loved Spencer. I thought Spencer was oh my great, God, was and so it was awesome. artistically like gorgeous. Um, I am stupid and didn't know anything about um, Princess Diana before that. I mean, I know a little bit. I know what everyone knows that you know John Mulaney killed her, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't um, know anything. And I just think it was. I know that some people said that it, it focused too much on her eating disorder, um, which is interesting, but. You know, I, everyone has a different opinion about these things. It's like, you know. And I think, you know, there is there is that one side about um, 
you know, kind of the exploitative media and like the spectacle that shouldn't be shown. Um, but I think, you know, another component of, you know, what Nope's commentary is, it's not only, you know, spectacle that maybe shouldn't be shown, but just like the uh, um, kind of obsession with spectacle in general right now in mm-hmm. film and how that's almost, you know, over dominating, you know, it sounds pretentious to say, but like the arguably like more artistic film, you know, I think there was obviously a, the huge, you know, press and talk when Martin Scorsese made his comments about, you know, Marvel and like amusement park cinema. Um, and I think, nope, you know, the other kind of side of that coin is that it's commenting on um, spectacle in general and how maybe there is just an obsession with just too much of that and not as much like um, dry, other drive besides just the spectacle. Mm-hmm. The the part in Nope where the director of photography that they kind of hired out to help them like capture f- like video yeah, of I the... I cannot for the life of me remember his name. I can't ever. either. Is he was a really fun character. The cinematographer we're talking yeah, yeah, about? Yeah. yeah, the cinematographer. Oh, you mean the character? The Sorry. Character. That's yeah, the, not, that's not the, the actual, actual DOP. <laughs> the, in yeah. the movie, the character that they call and up. are like, hey, can you help us? Oh, like Geek Squad, dude. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. Like the guy who was on set when they were doing the commercial. Oh, oh, yeah, I got it. Yeah. He had that one scene where he had like, you know, the, the hand crank camera that he made. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so he was, was like, oh, Antler's this is. Hoist. Antler's Hoist. Mm-hmm. And there's that one scene where he's like, oh, this is the shot everyone dreams of. And he like runs up the mountain away from the safe like area they had created, um, and then he, he died. Mm-hmm. It, that almost feels like referential to like the death of the woman who was working on was called Rust with Alec Baldwin, mm-hmm. uh, where it's like, is this yeah. picture, is this spectacle worth losing a life over? Yeah, sort of calling into question. If you guys saw. Um, it was the one year anniversary of that incident earlier, and uh, like earlier this week, I think. Wow. And Alec mm-hmm. Baldwin just posted a picture of the um, person who died and just said one year ago today in the caption. And a lot of people were like, what? <laughs> what, hmm. what, what were you doing here, buddy? <laughs> but yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you're all good. <laughs> it, it sort of feels like critiquing, you know, other movies that, yeah. not other movies, but just like whether or not all of the the, the lauded platforms some of these movies mm-hmm. have been put on is even worth it or if they're worthy of their respect. And certainly if it's not, it's not worthy of losing somebody's life over. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's not necessarily losing life. I think, you know, a very recent example that kind of touches on that from like a way to do it and a way not to do it um, was the recent releases of Top Gun Maverick paralleled with the release of Jurassic World Dominion, you know, um, paralleled more in the sense of they both came out around the same times. They were both these, you know, reboots of a beloved eighties and nineties IP. Um, you know, Jurassic world. Yeah. It was the third one of this reboot, but nonetheless, it's the one where, you know, they get the old cast and they all come together and they both came out around the same time and they both sure they both, um, got decent amount of box office, which I think we can talk about that in a second. But I think there was a vastly different, not only audience and critics response, but just in general, they're totally different in quality and just <laughs> Top Gun Maverick, I think, is a lot better film for a lot of reasons. And I think when you put them next to each other, the uh, issues with Jurassic World relating to this whole spectacle thing become like glaringly obvious. Yeah, no, Tom yeah. Cruise certainly has his flaws yeah but um (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's really really awesome to see somebody with the influence that he has 
pushing so hard for like practical effects yeah. and like for lack of a better term, like just proper filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that whole opening sequence of Top Gun Maverick where Tom Cruise's character is flying that like experimental plane and um, his higher ups are like, oh, we're going to shut the program down and replace it mm-hmm. with, you know, automatic drone controlled planes. Um, it's so literally being like, fuck you people that don't make movies yeah. right and just abuse their VFX artists. Like as amazing as visual effects and CGI is as a tool, you can't make an entire movie that way. It's just one tool in your arsenal. Yeah. Um, and they used it really well. Like they didn't go into the mountains. They didn't do, they did all the maneuvers, but not in the dangerous situations they did them in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yeah, like the, the dichotomy of that between the Jurassic world movie really shows, you know, it really, it's nice to see it pay off that extra effort obviously paid off in the box office and in critical acclaim. Yeah. Um, which is just nice to see. Like it, it could be argued that Top Gun Maverick is one of the most important movies of the summer. Yeah. And I think it's like, you know, while the probably one of the biggest things about that movie is, you know, like the practical effects and what they did with the planes, you know, I feel like they didn't lose sight of the narrative and the characters, despite, you know, that being probably their biggest thing. And I think that's probably one of the most important things in comparison to Jurassic World Dominion, where Jurassic World Dominion really suffers, because I think they were like, we've got the old cast together, and it'll be like this sort of like end game event with the like new characters, and you've got dinosaurs, and it'll be awesome, and it'll be great. And it kind of just was not great, you know? Like, I watched it, and I was like, this is so disappointing, because it really could have been something special if they... And it felt like they took the time to you know, go back to the drawing board and kind of figure something out. But they just kind of dropped the ball in the story. And they were like, here's some dinosaurs and some cool action scenes and your characters are together. But dialogue is bad and the story's bad and it's just disappointing. And you can't just have quote unquote spectacle without a good like narrative, good story, good characters behind it. Cause otherwise it's just empty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm so disappointed in myself, guys, because, you know, way back in the day, and Max, you'll relate to this because we Mm. talk about this all the time. Back in the day, Max and I were big Marvel fans, and we were like, Scorsese, Max wrote a whole paper on it. (laughs) I did two different things. In high school, I wrote an article about, like, oh, why Martin Scorsese is wrong about Marvel. And then literally last year, I did, like, a whole, like, three-speech project for a class about why Marvel movies are cinema. Um, and then like, you know, I'll let Bristol finish the story, but I've really come around for a lot of reasons on that <laughs> opinion. <laughs> yeah. So I think it was Thor Love and Thunder this, um, summer that really took me out of it and made me realize that it's just spectacle. And also, I mean, Keller likes to talk all the time about Spider-Man No Way Home and how it's, and, and it's just VFX. Like that most of the actors weren't even in the same room together, um, but I just think like that what you said, Max, about how it's there's no heart behind it really comes through. And Thor Love and Thunder is the one that like socked me in the face because I love Taika Waititi. Taika Waititi has one of been one of my like pedestal directors for a while. Like I've been watching his stuff. I love what we do in the shadows. I love Jojo Rabbit. I loved Hunt for the Wilder People like Thor Ragnarok was one of my favorite movies for a really long time. I think it's still up there because I think it is a good example of a Marvel film that feels like it has heart. And I think it's because Taika did have like some passion behind it when he was making it. And I think he must have just lost it for Love and Thunder because it's just not there. The plot is so simple, so boring. 
it's not visually and like it's it their whole thing was making it visually interesting and they somehow failed at that as well and it's just uh, and it's just know. so sad because i feel like marvel was almost this like like titan of storytelling like grand storytelling you know like sure they had the like cool visual effects and like these superheroes or whatever but like you know you could say that like they were very like renowned for creating this over like mapping story and just to see them like very lately you know not have these great stories anymore or maybe they're more focused on the grand story than their own movies which i feel like is a problem like it's just it's upsetting especially as someone who like loved that growing up and like yeah maturing more you know growing new taste but i really felt like i could continue to love marvel you know growing my like film knowledge and you know film respect and it just it's kind of dropped off and it's upsetting I suspect that it's because of studio influence. Because, like, mm-hmm. the, the MCU's, like, biggest accomplishment is the control they've managed to maintain over all their movies. Yeah. Which is the only reason that they can create this cohesive, you know, universe of however many, like, 23? How many movies are there in there it's now? At least 30 by now. I yeah, bet. like yeah. a shit ton of movies that are TV all... TV shows. <laughs> yeah. And so their biggest feat was the control they maintained. And Kevin Feige did a good job of that in mm-hmm. the early years. But as the market for it has grown, they've become more nitpicky with what they're controlling. And they're worried about satisfying the fans. They don't want to have people that have like a Last Jedi situation where they get angry that the characters are being used in a creative way, but not a way that they want. Um, and so as their nitpicking gets greater, they end up with these boring movies like yeah. Love and Thunder, where like I have like I, I can't confirm this, but I'm pretty sure that with Ragnarok, you know, the first door was kind of weird. The second door, everybody hated. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody that I've talked to. So they kind of just threw Ragnarok to this up and coming guy and they said, like, you know, just see what happens. Do something weird. Maybe we can reset the franchise. Yeah. And holy he shit, did they? completely reshaped mm-hmm. Thor as a character because I think the reason Ragnarok succeeds so well and it's also why Guardians of the Galaxy is one of the successful miniature trilogies. Well, it will be a trilogy of Marvel hopefully is it's because. A yeah, hopefully. <laughs> I guess we'll see what the third one is that it embraces like the comic book feel that we all want the fun stupid not relying on realism because when in my opinion when you try to rely on realism in a comic book adaptation you kind of shoot yourself in the foot because comic books rely on the fact that they are fantasy like that is the very premise that they're built on is that these guys have superpowers and they're crazy and but whenever you're like oh no let's try to make it gritty and interesting it's like what they call me jeeg yeah exactly <laughs> We like, you know, we all know what real life is like. We don't want to see that in the in the superhero movies. Like we don't want to see like, oh, this is what it would really be like if there were superheroes. We want to see like there's a talking tree and a raccoon and, and they all just go into space and they have a little silly time together. And it's fun. And it's Ragnarok was literally like there's a whole segment about the devil's anus. Like I that movie's so fun. And it's also comedy done well. I feel like Marvel comedy has really dropped off recently. It's all one liners and it's not fun anymore whereas like when you have like what Ragnarok did was that combination of like good writing that Taika Taika knows how to write comedy I mean just watch all of his other movies and you have um actors who know comedy like I think uh Tessa Thompson just really shines in that movie she's fantastic and it, it, it works and now you like now I mean I haven't even kept watching the tv shows they're coming out with because they're so don't even get me boring. started on it's the just TV one-liners. shows 
It's like I think the last TV show I watched was what was the one before Miss Marvel? Uh, Loki. I don't know. Uh, the there Hawkeye? was one. Moon Knight? I watched. I, I watched Moon Knight. Yeah. Moon Knight was fine. I think the reason Moon Knight was fine is because it didn't. It it wasn't anything. It didn't relate to anything. It was separate. But it was just fine. There was no, it was, you know, they're all just like, ah, it's about this guy. It, but like, why do we care about this guy? You know, that's what it, I feel yeah. like we need to get back to is because for me as a big person who like, I loved these characters in middle school. I like loved these characters. The reason I loved them is because I found something in them that I was so empathetic towards. Like Bucky Barnes, he was one of my big guys. I loved him. And I don't know, there was just something empathetic to me as a middle schooler who was like a little bit of a loner. I didn't really have friends and I was a bit of an outcast. And this guy really was an outcast. And he and I related to that and I liked that. And there was heart in that. And his story was interesting because he had this whole like brainwashed and et cetera, et cetera. And now it's just like, ah, uh, he's a guy and he has the powers and he goes around and does the things. It's like, why do we care about him? Yeah. That's what needs to be there. It's like too focused on, you know, the like, flashy superhero but also just like the output now like i feel like there's this you know more issues with like making movies just to make money and mm -hmm. i know that's kind of like a, a a thing of debate or like i know recently you know martin scorsese had these comments at the new york film festival that like he was like you know like the film industry has become so obsessed with like box office numbers rather than you know quality or whatever and i feel like not only you know is like Marvel and like with Jurassic World Dominion, you know, they put out these movies that sure make like a shit ton of money, but aren't that great, which is upsetting. But also like with Marvel, I'm pretty sure that they've already made in the past like two years post Endgame more like hours of film with their TV shows and movies than the entirety of their like movies pre-Endgame from like Iron Man to Endgame. And it's really? just like well, Yeah, mm -hmm. like when you think like about that. Like that's a real statistic? I think so. Like with like, you know, all the TV shows, yeah. that's like six hours each one um, with like the seven, eight and movies And they still haven't made. figured out how to pace you know, the TV shows. They still haven't figured <laughs> that out. They made so many and they still don't know how to accurately make a, like take a movie format and put it in a television show but keeping the pacing good. Because yeah. they're just churning them out as yeah. fast yeah, as like possible. Yeah, like you sit back and you're just like, wow. They really just put out so much content in two to three years and it's like are you really focused on telling a story and like doing stuff for quote-unquote your fans or are you just trying to put out as much as you can to make a lot of money i think they need to like kevin feige and the studio needs to take a step back and worry about the big picture the macro like the plan of mm -hmm. all the movies and then they need to assign the movies to people like Taito Watiki or James yeah. Gunn or Chloe Zhao. Like I thought Eternals was fucking awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was super different. It was very character driven, but they didn't market it at all. So nobody saw it. Um, but like, like what the Harry Potter franchise did in its early years. And like, I know that JK Rowling is kind of an asshole, but that franchise uh, as a film franchise is incredible. The thing it was able to accomplish as early as it did, but they gave Chris Columbus the first two and then Alfonso Cuaron. And like they had these, really cool movies made by really cool people. And then eventually they shifted to um, David Yates and he's, you know, a fine director. He made good Harry Potter movies, but then like the spark was gone and the movies didn't yeah. have their own flair and their own like character. And the last chunk of the whole franchise ended up being, you know, consistent, but to me at least way less interesting. Yeah. And so I think that if the MCU is able to 
find up and coming new people that have, you know, a vision and a, and a style and something unique. Like they could have done it with Multiverse of Madness with my boy, Sam Raimi. But again, mm-hmm. I suspect that the studio influence was too great and they limited any other creativity he would Absolutely. have had from behind That's the director's chair. Definitely what happened. But with how much content they're producing, if they're able to diversify the things they're making and make it interesting and unique, mm-hmm. then they can pull in an even greater audience. They already have the core of the fanboys that are going to come to mm-hmm. every movie at midnight on the day mm-hmm. it comes out. Um, I think they'd be left off with much more interesting and better products. And at this point in their stage, like they're just making too many things to stick to this one boring conventional style. Everyone's going to burn out. Like I know this is a thing that like I experienced a while ago and now you guys are experiencing as well. And I think even, I think it's a broad, you know, trend. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what made the early days of Marvel. So like, at least it was enjoyable. Like the, um, Di- diversity in it like i keep coming back to um what were the what was the movie that uh, guardians of the galaxy and the winter soldier both came out like within a year of each other mm-hmm. and they are shockingly different films i mean the winter soldier is basically like a spy drama um and it, at the core of it it has this like story about these two friends who you know fell apart and they've come back together and it's 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 got some heart in it and then guardians is just fun and shits and gigs the whole time Um, and I feel like that really shows that if they did like, you know, go a little funky with it, it would be cool. But now they're just like, ah, it's a TV show about a guy and the guy gets his powers. And then with his powers, he finds another guy who doesn't like that. He has powers like, (laughs) okay, (laughs) I'm bored. Thanks. And I feel like, you know, they're struggling a lot with the, the narrative and just like being as consistent as they were. But there's like this whole other issue that I think like Marvel is really the biggest, you know, um, I guess like hot topic or the the biggest kind of um, what's the word? The biggest um, like wrongdoer in this sense, <laughs> um, you know, tying it back to spectacle that they're so focused on is, you know, the visual effects in their movies and visual effects in general in the film industry right now. Um, yeah. You know, I think Keller was touching on, you know, like with something like Top Gun Maverick, you know, like you use practical effects for the most part, but like you don't rely on CGI um, and effects like that for your entire movie. You know, you can use it to touch up or, you know, if there's a scene that you can't do it any other way, sure, do that. But, you know, you're not necessarily relying on it for the whole thing. I feel like not only with Marvel releasing, you know, globs of content now, it's there's an issue with, sure, the effects that, you know, we see as an audience member, you know, if it's not realistic, like it's like, all oh, rats, like I'm unimmersed from the film. But it's this bigger issue in the film industry of the treatment of visual effects artists, you know. And while this is kind of maybe its own topic relating to, you know, this idea of like spectacle and film and all of that, it's a really big issue that's going on. And I feel like, you know, lately it's been getting some light, but like dating all the way back to, you know, you know, probably earlier than this, but at least as early as like 2012 ish, there's this documentary that came out in 2014 called life after pie. Um, and it was talking about, um, the visual effects company. Um, I believe it was called rhythm and Hughes, uh, who did the VFX for life of pie, which if you've seen it, you know, it's like, really crazy the stuff they did you know with like richard parker the tiger who's there for like the entirety of the movie basically but just all of the animals in there like it's like stunning work so you're like wow this is super impressive and even before life of pi they were like 
groundbreaking within the industry. They won yeah. a bunch of technical awards way before that as well. Yeah, like Rhythm and Hughes was like a huge name in like VFX companies. And as the documentary tells, Life of Pi pretty much, I believe, put them out of business. After Life of Pi came out and before the Oscars, they went bankrupt. They filed for bankrupt. The company was no longer there. Um, all the employees, you know, were put off. Um, and then the Oscars come around and Life of Pi wins for visual effects, which, you know, there's already irony in there with, you know, the winners of this, the, arguably the most prestigious film award um, for visual effects artists. They win this. But if you go back and you watch the video of them accepting it, that was their platform to talk about this issue, to, you know, talk about the treatment of visual effects artists. And they were musicked off. They were ushered off with like the Jaws theme. And it's like a really big issue. And I feel like Marvel is one of the biggest proponents now of mistreatment of visual effects artists. Yeah, the poor VFX studios overwork all of their employees and they send them into like crunch time like the video game industry mm -hmm. does all so that, you know, they can make fake trees for Spider-Man No Way Home <laughs> yeah. instead yeah. of just putting John Favreau and um, fuck, what's Spider-Man's name? Tom Holland. Tom Holland on an actual like location. Like yeah. it's just it's just it's like stupid. not only is it lazy and bad filmmaking, but they're like a, these are this like labor rights violations yeah. for these poor VFX artists who are artists. Like the stuff mm -hmm. they do is legitimately incredible. Yeah. Um, but it's being misused artistically speaking, misused, you know, financially speaking, and then mis they are being mistreated. Um, I know a lot of those studios are trying to unionize and they're having a lot of pushback from mm -hmm. Disney, not only Disney specifically, but like studios and then the, the companies themselves are all trying to prevent this um yeah but and i always just sit back and i'm just like disney is like arguably the richest film industry like they've got star wars on their back and marvel on their back and they've got all their other stuff and you watch these films and you're like you would think that with the like most like money making movie industry out there um they would be able to you know have these good effects but you know as you dig deeper you realize what's going on because i'm pretty sure in the documentary um, they talk about how I think the way, at least at that time, that film effects were, was that visual effects artists get paid, like the company gets paid for like 500 shots or something like that, that they have to do the work on. Um, but, you know, they do these 500 shots and let's say the director comes back and is like, I don't like this. I want this to be changed. Or, you know, we want to do a complete overhaul of this. You need to change this they're not getting paid extra for that because they're just getting paid to do the 500 shots that they were laid out to do. And so they're forced to work so much overtime because, you know, there are deadlines with this film um, that was supposed to come out because these are, you know, re-edits and stuff. And so they end up working like these like 100 hour weeks, like just putting in so much time um, into these shots and not getting paid for it. You know, I think one big example that kind of, you know, I don't know if people talked about it too much but with the sonic movie like you know the first trailer came out of that and it was like the, everyone <laughs> made fun of the designs you know it's like like oh my gosh what happened to sonic like why does he look like that and it was like this crazy thing you know and what it looked like the, the industry did was like oh they saw that the fans didn't like it and so they went back and they changed the design and they made everybody happy but i'm pretty sure that that vfx studio also went out of business because they had to do all of those redesigns and, you know, they weren't getting paid and they were overworked. So it's like a really big issue that I don't think is getting as much uh, spotlight as it should be. Yeah. 
I, this is slightly off topic, but it's on topic. I want to circle back because I'm remembering um, in Nope something that uh, makes me think um, is just the use of consumption as like a literal, like a literal metaphor. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I feel like it always comes back to like, unfortunately, we're consumers, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's that whole thing with like, you know, supporting movies. Like, what do you choose? Your money is like you are literally like metaphorically voting on what movies you want to see produced by what movies you go and see and put your money towards. Like if you go and only see every Marvel movie, then they're going to make to keep making absolute shit. Um but if you go and put your money down for like, you know, the fun stuff coming out, everything everywhere all at once, nope. Mm-hmm. Everything else that has come out that has been fantastic so far this year, then you're showing that that is what you as as a person who spends your money wants to see and more movies like that get made. And I think nope, there's a lot in there and it's still hard to digest. Like I still have been thinking on it since it came out. Like the whole thing with... um Jupe, uh, Stephen Yeun's character, and literally when he is like presenting the like what is it the star the starlight experience or something mm-hmm. um, to his like crowd of people, he's like there are these aliens here and I call them the viewers, and I just can't stop thinking about that. That's got to be a commentary on like how I don't know something about us as people who we want we want to watch this crazy shit where the reason it gets made like people watch Blonde and Dahmer and The Crown and that's the reason that it continues to come out and we continue to get this exploitative crazy stuff um, is because there's a market for it and we consume it like Jean Jacket, the alien in the movie, consumes the people anyway. Consuming there's so the people much who watch exactly. them in reverse, you know? Yeah, like the... It there, it's like I said, it's so dense, it's so hard. Like in my brain, I'm like, oh, there's so many things, but it's like literally the the product we are consuming the product, and the product is consuming us. It's crazy. I just there, the movie is really good. Go, go see it if mm-hmm. you haven't. <laughs> but no, yeah, there there is definitely a, you know a market for these blockbusters. Yeah, um, and there are like this sect of actual artists making stuff like. Denis Villeneuve is that how you say his name? Yeah, um, with um, Blade Runner twenty forty nine and with his new Dune movie, um, and Robert Eggers just made The Northman, which was kind of like a big like action style yeah. kind of blockbuster, which was a departure from what he's usually done. And and Top Gun Maverick isn't quite on the same caliber as those. Like you know, it got a lot of yeah. attention and was actually made properly. People want these big movies, yeah. Like but I, I don't think the the cool ones are being you know advertised properly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree, and I was just gonna say like it's my hope that people really go and support a lot of these things. Like, I think one of the most exciting things that I saw about like a film, like everything everywhere all at once was that I think it was like a 24's highest grossing movie. Yeah. And you see stuff like that. And it's like, people do want to see this kind of stuff, but you just got to like, remember to support it. And also the film industry needs to, you know, remember to take note of that and put more marketing towards movies like that because you know i do think that there are a lot of really creative inventive and good movies being made right now but sometimes it's just maybe that studio doesn't think they should spend money to market it when maybe they should yeah i mean i feel like marketing nowadays makes or breaks a film whether you get Mm -hmm. like for example the woman king just came out i work in a movie theater the woman king just came out 
and nobody came to see that movie. And it, everyone who came to see it was like, this is insanely good. Viola Davis is crazy amazing. Like, mm-hmm. this is a really good film. Who's an easy to market person? Yeah, like, Viola, Viola Davis, Davis is, is everyone yeah. loves Viola Davis. But yeah. they did not market. I didn't hear about that movie until like three days before. Like, I was working a shift three days before its opening weekend. And I was like, oh, what's this? And I looked it up. And I, actually, I take it back. I did hear about it, but it was because my roommate got to see them work on the composition of the film in Ireland or something. But um, that was, I, I forgot about it. She mentioned that and I forgot about it. And then I was like, oh, okay. And no one came to see it. And it apparently was a fantastic movie. I didn't get time to go see it, but uh, Yeah, crazy. I saw like one trailer for it in a movie, but like nothing on yeah. like, Twitter or Instagram. Like I'm on film, Twitter, Instagram. So like yeah, if anybody's going to get them, it's going to be us. I know. So. But, that reminds me also of like I don't know if you guys know anything about the Empty Man. It's this like horror movie that recently came out, um, like an independent horror movie, and people you know who saw it like raved about it, you know, um, and the distributors just like totally didn't give it a platform. Like mm-hmm. they didn't give it a physical media release at all. Like you can't get that on physical media. I think they took it off um, like HBO Max and uh, the streaming platforms. And you see stuff like that happen to these really good movies. And it's just like, it's a shame. It's a shame. But yeah. I mean, studios need to put their money where their mouth is. If they believe in a movie, they need to, you know, back it so that it can yeah. have the opportunity to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember who was saying it, but I saw like a really good interview excerpt where somebody in the industry was talking about how studios need to be more comfortable with losing money, at least at first on some of their like, more indie, you know, wings or they're like, you know, subdivisions that make more artistic, more like independent, you yeah. know, smaller budget stuff. Um, they need to be okay with sinking more money into it so that it can get its name out there and they can get some momentum going so that then in the future they can be more profitable. Um, I think about how much attention A24 has paid attention to their yeah. branding and their marketing and stuff. And they've got like a whole like cult following now. Yeah. And um, A24 has made some shit movies. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Like, I mean, they, they've got some yeah, bangers and they, they've got their yeah. misses. The, the thing is that they did allow for those people to make those movies and, you know. I mean, uh, the argument can be made that A24 should market better, but um, they allowed for those people to make those garbage movies, and now they're getting to pump out bangers like Lady Bird and Hereditary and all this crazy shit, so. And then, like, it's also, like, things like that that it's just, like, when studios do give, you know, chances to these up-and-coming filmmakers, it makes it so much more, I don't know if appealing is the right word, but just much more encouraging as, you know, people who want to go into film and make movies if you see you know these smaller movies being really like held up and supported by these industries it's like it encourages people to make more movies to be more creative so that you can get more of these like more of these artistic movies or more of these like just like really gripping stories you know if you support independent movies like that you will get more of that, not only in people who support it, but people who want to make that kind of stuff. Yeah, the market's definitely more saturated now than it ever has been before. But for that reason, there's even less of an excuse to be putting out, you know, a not very carefully made or like just like yeah. cash grab content because it would be so easy for studios to do the Apple TV Plus method, which is just to go to festivals to find really cool art pieces that are already made and just buy them and distribute them. Yeah. Um, like, I don't know why, like, Peacock is, you know, making all these <laughs> garbage TV shows and movies just as cash grabs when they could just be paying independent artists the same or less, honestly, probably, yeah. money and then get like actual accolades and give them a platform and like, that's how they got Coda. 
like Coda was purchased mm-hmm. at Sundance, mm-hmm. um, and it won Oscars because yeah. Apple was, you know, they supported the artist. Um, and it's an interesting way to like jumpstart their streaming service anyway, but it seems, you know, more sustainable, more like mm-hmm. conscious, I guess, for lack of a better word, more supportive, more supportive and more sustainable for the future. Also just cooler. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Palm Springs was purchased at something by right. Hulu. Yeah. 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 So mm-hmm. that's so. my favorite movie, <laughs> <laughs> but go support more than just Marvel. Um, and go watch just, like go like buy tickets and watch yeah. like some cool independent bangers. I think that's, that's a fantastic more than just spectacle. Point for a more than just spectacle. Yes, more than just spectacle. Awesome. Well, are any other final comments? Okay. Thank um, you guys yeah. so yeah, much thanks. for listening or watching, depending on what service you're on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you can yeah. check us out uh, the sound stage uh, wherever you can find podcasts. We are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Spotify. We are on Google Podcasts. We will be uploaded to YouTube with the video portion. But yeah, be sure to tune in. We'll be having more uh, podcast episodes in the future, various topics, various people. So be sure to stay tuned and continue to check us out. Yeah, and if you are a CFC student who um, is a part of the film club and you're interested in producing a podcast episode, um, email us. Reach out to us. We got you. (laughs) Thank you so much.